But today, we are going to look at, at the passage we have. We're going to finish up uh, chapter 50 and then move into 51. And we're going to look at today's passage in the following way. We're going to look at um, chapters 50, verses 7 through 11. And we're going to finish the servant song. This is the third servant song. And then as we move into 51, we have a thing where chapter 51, verse 1, all the way to 52, 12, is a series of eight oracles. Eight oracles. And today we're going to look at three of them. Um, and that's oracle one is chapter 51, verses 1 through 3. We're going to call that God's people renewed and Eden restored. God's people renewed and Eden restored. Oracle 2 is 51, 4 through 6. Oracle 2 is 51, 4 through 6. And that is a revelation to the world of eternal salvation. And then Oracle 3 will be 51, 7 and 8. And that's eternal salvation will lead to fearlessness. Okay, so before we jump right in, what I want to do is, is just look back over the, the last several weeks, because that, that really will help us out today. So right now we are looking at what's called the greater deliverer. Uh, we ended the great deliverer looking how God would use Cyrus to be that great deliverer, and bring the people back from Babylon, or free them to come back from Babylon. And then we are getting close to the end as we get this. And in the last section, 56 through 66, it's God's promise to give us an anointed conqueror. But right now, God is still promising his people, is you will be conquered and taken because they've been getting caught up in the world and forgetting this creator of the world who has made them his chosen. God gave them land, he gave them protection, and in return, he wanted this communion with them, and he didn't get it. So therefore, at the end of chapter 48, he declared there was no peace for the wicked. Now, Knowing they would be taken, and we talked about this last week in our CG, that even being told it would happen, even someone that had done so much good in his life, Hezekiah, didn't seem to care because, as he said, at least there'll be peace in my lifetime. And, and knowing it was coming, they did nothing to prevent it. So the people of Judah that are going to be taken in 49.14 says, says they, and they claim, God has forgotten us. So obviously, like a, what happens, like is a spoiled child that receives punishment for their actions and forgetting all that their parents had done for them, they're just looking at the immediate inconvenience. So they ignored warning after warning to turn to God and they're going to receive punishment at this proper time. But God never forgets. They claimed he forgot them. God never forgets. And he answers them in a tough way that today parents say this, right? Because parents lie. They will give a spanking to a child, and they'll say, you know what? This is going to be harder on you than it is me. That's a lie. I know I never thought that. And if anything, I could tell them, you know what? You had it much easier than I did. When it was time to spank me, I had a group of people that I wanted names. My dad was a principal of an elementary school that had a wood shop. What a horrible idea. And I wanted the names of these people that would make him these paddles that experienced no drag on the backswing. If I did, I'd probably find out they're all aerospace engineers because these, these paddles were incredible. 
First time I ever seen wood drilled out and taped. So there'd be no drag whatsoever as the wind come through. So my kids had it easy. I didn't, there was no way I felt worse for them than they were going to get it rougher than, than I was administering it. But God, God has a claim here. He tells them, you know what? You're in trouble. You're going to go away for 70 years. You're going to go away for 70 years and, and then come back. And I can't forget you. And I won't forget you. Because as we saw the servant says in 49.16, I have engraved you in the palms of my hand. And in 50 verse 1, God tells them, you know what? I, basically, to sum it up, he's saying, I removed the ten northern tribes, took care of them. They are gone. They are no longer. But I have not and will not separate from you. And then in verse 54, we start the third servant song. So we, after I go over the passage, we're going to look at a brief look at four through six, which are part of the servant's song. Then make our way through the rest of it and on into 51. So let's go over the passage. It says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walk in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have done from my hand. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arm will judge the peoples the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in the like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you so much that we can come before you seeing you pictured in the Old Testament here and seeing the example that you left us. 
Holy Spirit, we thank you for the words that you came in and spoke through Isaiah. We thank you so much for this book and what it means to us, especially at this time of history where we know what occurred back then. This had to be a mystery for most of them, but we can look back and see just the wonders that God laid out in this book that have taken place through Jesus in the New Testament. And to us, it simply blows our minds. Help us to see your words here and your call on our lives today. And we thank you so much for this. Amen. So the third servant song here is like the second in that it is autobiographical. But it doesn't mention here who the speaker is until we get to the 10th verse. In verse 4, we see the servant with his word for the weary. It's the same prophetic sneak peek that we saw in the other servant songs. So we see it in 42, 1 through 4, and in 49, 1 and 2, and then later in, in the fourth one in chapter 53. He's bringing good news to us, the Gentiles. He's doing it in gentle speech in 42. 42.2 says he will not cry aloud or lift his voice. Um, an incisive speech in 49.2 where he says it's coming like a sharp sword. And then in 53, he does it with a pure mouth. And in today's verses, 7 and 9, with no speech at all. So he did not open his mouth in verse 7. And later in 9, when he did, there was no deceit found in it. Also in verse 4, we see that, you know, this word that sustains him, the word that sustains him, is from a discipline of daily hearing God's word. So I love the example of that discipline. Uh, we see Jesus in the New Testament. How many times do we see this where Jesus would get up early in the morning before everyone else and go out away from everybody else to commune with his Father, and he de thus demonstrating that daily discipleship for us. And so while God's people thought nothing, thought nothing of God's sovereignty. By the servant's actions here, we see that it meant everything to him, everything. We see that in verse 5, he maintained integrity, and we're going to see it today in chapter 50 in verses 7 and 9. So we see a picture of a dedicated disciple, and it shows us for us, it shows us that this is not a gift to be given, but it was he was subjected and taught the principles of discipleship. And we saw that in Isaiah chapter 8, 9 through 20. Isaiah chapter 8, 9 through 20. So it gives us a picture of him like strapping on his armor, which we know is the same armor we see in the New Testament. Not walking in the way of the world. He was obedient obedient to God's word, and he had a real and proper fear of God. So, and what happens? We see in verse 4, and, and, and do not let this escape you. The servant awakens each day and has time with God, and his mind is thus filled with knowledge as one who desires to learn. This wasn't initially planned in the message today, but it was interesting because you're talking about a, di a disciple, someone who spends time in the Word every day, and it begins to reflect in their life. So on my way home Thursday, I was talking to my wife, and she shared about a dream she had. And so it's like, I don't dream like this. So what she shared was she was in like a conference, and the main speaker wasn't there. And so she went up and started talking and asking people about questions. And I'm probably botching the story, but suffice it to say that 
in her dream, someone asked her about the believer's baptism. So she was able to give them what the message was and where to go find it in the Bible. So she awoke with Ephesians on her mind and jumped right into it. To me, that was amazing. It's like, I dream weird dreams. And so it was like, I, I want to dream like that. So the idea is to be this polished stone, to be this sharpened sword, it doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't. It's not something you can see at TV early in the morning where on a commercial infomercial where for five easy payments of $19.99. You can get this discipleship. It takes time, dedication, and a desire to morning by morning being with him, right? It's like we see what Jesus showed us he did. And what happens is you get that opened ear that's mentioned in verse 5. And the actual, the picture that's given in the original language, it's not an open ear. It's like an open door that, that you get this in. It's a demonstration of a receptive disciple. That way we are doing what God wants us to do and understanding the deeper meanings that God has for us in his commands. Because when the times get tough, and I mean extremely difficult, we are not going to turn away when we have that. We know what's eternal, and then we also know right before us is not. And all that will fade away. And then six, we see the utter humiliation that's there in verse six in our lives. And when it happens, we'll be able to stand up against it, knowing that we serve an awesome God who has already provided the help for us to help us while we're on this side of heaven. And then how do we know that? We're going to jump into uh, seven, and, 7 and 9. The servant song. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. We see that Jesus as the servant in verse 6, he gives his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out his beard. And he did not even turn his face to those that spit on him. All these actions were major signs of humiliation. And this is happening in a culture that is honor-based. Even to this day, the culture there is honor-based. And then what's more is hanging on a tree is, a, is the worst way that you could be executed in that day. So this servant is willing to be shamed by the world standards because that is what God put forth for them. He did this because we read in verse 7 that the sovereign God will help him and he will not be disgraced. So we see that 6 and 7 play off each other. He will set his face, he will not flinch, and he will carry forth his father's plans. And disgraced and shame there gives us a picture in this day of feeling beyond embarrassment. What's really cool, though, is we see the part where it says he turned his face like flint. And we may have seen exactly when he did that when we look at 951, Luke 951. It says he set his face towards Jerusalem and would not look back. So it's like, well, how cool is that? 
we see in Isaiah 57, or that he set his face like flint, and then we read in Luke 9:51, he turned his face towards Jerusalem, and that's when it was going to happen. He was marching to the cross, and he was going to face all that punishment that took place during the Passion Week. And we know what happened to Jesus, right? The sheer torture and humiliation that happened. And he states, I will not be put to shame. And in verse 8, he demonstrates he knew his father very well because all that was going to happen, all that was going to take place, he says, he will vindicate me. And he who vindicates me is near. That statement can only come from a life committed to following God and knowing that he has an eternal life waiting for him. Jesus did not say, like Judah did in 49:14, that they failed, that God forgot me. They failed to know God. Jesus knew who his father was. And then in 8 and 9, we see that a courtroom scene takes place. This is something Jesus takes back to that we're very familiar in the book of Isaiah. These courtroom scenes, we've seen them before. And Jesus says in verse 8, hey, who is going to go up against me? Who will stand against me in a courtroom? and make a charge against me. Because he has a mind that's been developed over a lifetime with God, he has no fear of man. And the great thing is, is this strength is available to us so that anything that occurs on earth against God's word, we will be able to stand up against it and not be shamed because ultimately, we know where our future lies. And in verse 9, because God will help Jesus, no one could declare him guilty. And therefore, that means, get this, if he's not guilty, he is righteous. And at the end of 9, we see how God's enemies will fare. Verse 9 says, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And this is a scene we get multiple times in Isaiah moving forward. And also in like Psalm 39, 11, it says, When you disciple a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And then Job 13, 28. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So the accusers of God are compared to a worn-out garment that has no power to stand against its natural predator, the lowly moth. And then verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of a servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, <clears throat> all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have had from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In verse 10, so in the first two servant songs, the endings of the songs were tasks being confirmed to the servant by God. Now in the third and fourth servant songs, the last verses are commands to respond to the servant. We are to accept the servant as the model disciple, as it says in verse 10, trust in the name of God like the servant 
willingly does. So verse 10 and then Isaiah chapter 8, 9 through 20 are a requirement to follow. And they demonstrate two classes of people. Those who walk in the way of our standard bearer, the servant, and then those that no matter what they say or tell you, their life demonstrates they do not. They ultimately walk in their own self sufficiency now it's both 10 11 have six lines and together they contrast two ways of life we read that both ways of life have a path they follow one in darkness and the other in the light of self-sufficiency one has no light and the other has all the light from torches they lit themselves. One leads on the other, and the other lies down in torment. Now the thing is, while there's no obvious outcome um, or blessing promised as a result of the obedience, we see that those that that aren't following Christ, or that are following Christ, are not lying down in torment, and that's a good thing. And just in case you're wondering what exactly torment means, it means to severely suffer in the body physically and or suffering in the mind. And one thing that if you've had an anxiety attack before, you know lying down is not an option. And I can tell you, because I, I vividly remember three of them in my life that I've had. And the funny one, the first one I was lying down waiting for surgery. It had taken a long time, and I was just in the aisleway waiting and waiting. I was about ready to rip everything off me, go to the waiting room, and tell Colleen it's time to go. And then this tattooed face was looking down on me and saying, hi, I'm JC. I'm like, Jesus? <laughs> and he said, you don't look so good, buddy. And I said, I'm not. Next thing I know, a nurse came and gave me a, a big dose of a sedative and then I was fine. I was fine. The, ne the last one I had, we were in San Diego just a week or so ago. And we were in a hotel room. And I don't know what brought it on. Like I said, I don't have these often. And all I know is I stood up and then my foot started cramping up and toes were curling. So I'm having this rage of anxiety. My foot's aching. I'm going like, okay, I'm not going to worry about waking calling. I've already done that. I just got to find the nearest hospital to go to and just took some time, about an hour of just reading my word and sitting up. But man, I tell you what, they are no fun. So the idea of lying down just adds to the sheer punishment of this, of this anxiety. And so the promise here is that people not following God's plan will be lying down in this torment. And you think about it, that's awfully crushing. That is crushing to think about. But Romans 8, 5 tells us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so what this means, this is a great test for us, right? This gives us an opportunity based on Romans 8, 5, and by the way, if you haven't read that chapter in a while, do. I mean, I was ready to give a sermon just on chapter 8. It's just incredible. Um, so it's, it, this verse is great to use as a gauge in your own life. So are you doing research and studying the things of God or something else like how to swing a golf club better? Are you digging into Isaiah weekly and reading your Bible or whatever, whatever comes across your own mind? So that's a, a great verse to evaluate. And so the servant is not only our mentor in how to do this, but in this key, case we see he is a powerful Savior that shows us we are to trust the sovereign God and we can rely on this servant's God.
Verse 10 is also a version of Proverbs 1 7. says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and a fool despises wisdom and instruction. And verse 10 tells us that if we have the proper fear of God, we will obey and we will trust and we will learn to rely on Him. And this means we need the proper response to this fear of God. The proper response of this fear is to study, which leads into knowledge, which leads into obedience of God, which leads to a full trust of God, and it's observed in our lives. Has no light here in this section means not even a gleam, not even a spark. It's completely dark. So we are to trust and rely on his name alone. Blind trust, even in the difficult times, we are going through a tough period. And we see that, right? We saw the, the people of God go through the Egyptian bondage. You can see this in the whole book of Job. Um, you see this when you had two facing a fiery furnace. Uh, John the Baptist facing a horrible execution or any other dark period, by trusting in him is how we find that he is God and he was made for such moments as these. In Isaiah 10.20, it gives us a picture of resting on God as we see here. 10.20 says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And in Isaiah 42, 16, it says, And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into a level ground, these are the things I do. I do not forsake them. And then Micah 7, 8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And then verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Here we see those who continue to do their own thing, trying to deal with their own dark times, with their own knowledge or their own remedies. They are lost, hopeless, and ultimately doomed. Who equip yourselves is better said that we can understand is people who gird themselves. And we get this when we think of when we look in the Bible about people girding themselves for battle, they're making themselves ready for war. And it's a picture of these people that are self-reliant, who muster up all the earth's resources they can get in preparation to deal with these dark, difficult days. It's a picture of people who feel that they only need what they themselves can provide and with that they will do it themselves all right 51 1 through 3 god's people renewed and eden restored here we go into oracle one listen to me you who pursue righteousness you who seek the lord look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug Look to Abraham your father and Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her a wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So after verse 11 and 50, we understand that we need to pursue Jesus 
and therefore pursue righteousness. And if we didn't catch that, 51.1 reiterates it. It says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And the glorious part is when we get to verse 11, we see Jesus telling his remnant, listen to me, you who know righteousness. This opening oracle, the opening lines, uh, is marked by wordplay. We see the two words that will be used in this section that are similar. We see verse 1, we see seek and pursue, rock and quarry. Verse 2, we see Abraham and Sarah, blesses, made many. And in verse 3, we see comforts and comforts. You're going, Bill, you're crazy, but you can use that second one can, can mean compassion. Then we see desert and wastelands, Eden and garden, joy and gladness, and thanksgiving and singing. In verse 1, make no mistake, me means God. It is our God who called Abraham. This righteousness that is pursued is every aspect of life that is right with God. Seeking God here does not mean, it does not mean seeking like something is lost, like you're trying to find it. Um, please understand that seeking God here means coming to God with the full determination of a concerned seeker knowing where he was at and wanting to be with him and wanting to have this life that is aligned with righteousness. In the Gospels, we read where the crowds followed Jesus like they were seeking him for glory. And as he spotted, was spotted, more crowds appeared. But this is not the seeking we're talking about. Because when Jesus got closer to the end of his life, what happened? Those crowds, crowds diminished. They diminished so much that when Jesus was taken, who was with him? No one. No one was with him. And in his death, only a few of his witnessed it. So what we're understanding here, that life is brief, and knowing God and knowing God fully provides the eternal answers. And in verse 2, I love that God uses Abraham and Sarah in this verse. God is saying, look at the people I chose to make my covenant with. Um, and may we never forget that Abraham, being much older than 60, was close to death. And, and Sarah's ability to give birth was dead. So from these two, these two, God showed us his power by bringing forth sons, nations, and our eternal king. This verse shows us that the purpose for God in his call, is limitless. He has the transforming power to, to bless us so he can take someone with seemingly no ability or hope, according to the world, and make them a mighty people and a mighty nation. Verse 3, he has compassion for his people. God has determined to comfort his people, provide for them, and give them a future based on the work he started with Abraham and Sarah. If you think about it, their hopelessness at having an heir resembles the ruins that, that Babylon left Jerusalem in after taking the people away. Abraham was at the point he was thinking a servant would be his heir. And we have gone over how God in, in the book of Isaiah describes what Jerusalem would look like, who the inhabitants would be, and it was all wildlife. The use of Eden here is just not to give us a picture of this lush, beautiful environment. It's, it's actually signaling to us that when God brings us back, the curse that came after Eden is gone. Let that sink in for a moment. The curse, all we know of is the curse. 
in our life. We know of no time before that. So God will redeem, he will comfort, and above all, he's going to remove that curse of sin once the greater deliverer comes. Oracle 2, a revelation to the world of eternal salvation. Verse 4 through 6. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people and coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. An important part of this second oracle is it moves from the present message and it develops the person and the work of Jesus, the servant. We see the use of justice and light like we did in the first servant song in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, six list, lists the universal work done by Jesus as my righteousness. And in 42, 6, God says, he has called the servant to basically bring those who seek righteousness to salvation. Verse 4, my people, my nation, translated means my peoples. Interesting enough, enough the word for nations appears in the singular version only in Genesis 25, 23. And that is because it is used there to distinguish the, the line of Jacob from the line of Esau as descendants from Isaac. They're making that distinction known that this is where God's people are going. They're not going with Esau, they're going with Jacob. He's doing this to point the identity out that within the total population of the world there is a true people or remnant that he is calling out light for the peoples or nations means god is establishing a divine truth in the earth verse 5 my righteousness conforms with the character and claims of god for the nations for the nations is a mark of the true people and for god Righteousness is the quality of all that God has, that God does, whether for us, his people, and what the servant does. In verse 5, righteousness and salvation are parallel, with salvation being what God does, and righteousness is what he does to fulfill it. Salvation here has this Old Testament feel to this section because we see salvation turning away the divine wrath. And salvation now gives us a picture of trust leading to righteousness, fearlessness, joy, and strength in God. We see that same picture in verse 3, that the divine curse will be lifted much to our joy and now much to our salvation. Notice how the arm here, we haven't seen this before, it's plural. We also see God referring to his strong arm, and now he is using arms. And it's probably there, be there to show us the fullness of his actions. His pledge to perform a mighty act in judging the other people. We see the plural form also once more in Deuteronomy 33, 27, when he will be cradling us in his arms. The use of the word coastland, remember, that means Gentile nations and, and the people all throughout the world. And all throughout the Bible, there have been God's true people 
that have not come through this line of Israel. We see like Cornelius in Acts 10, his desire for God and for a deliverer, the greater deliverer, this great light was is, is mentioned there. This is not from them, but they were called for this. And in Romans 8.29, again, what a great chapter. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So all such longings of, of the true people will be met by the servant. And we are to wait for that time. And he's saying, my arm will deliver. Verse 6, having gone over God's righteous salvation, verse 6 gives us a picture, gives us a picture of the view of its eternity. This, pic, this verse gives us a picture of the most durable things, things we know that they will fade and flee, but salvation will not. And here we also receive a double order to lift our eyes to the heavens and look at the earth below. Vanish that's used here can be said as falling to bits. The heavens will appear as a thick black smoke that trails off and is never seen again. The earth will wear out like a garment and those who dwell in it, and some translations says in this thing, instead of like manner, will die like flies. God's salvation is forever, and if we think about it, 1 Corinthians you know, 13 and the love passage, it says God's salvation, much like love, will never fail. No external force can ever overcome what God has planned. Oracle 3, 51, 7, and 8, the eternal salvation that leads to fearlessness. Listen to me, you, know, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. This third oracle shares a matching call with the previous ones and continues in this theme of righteousness. The last two lines in verse 8 matching, matches the end of the second oracle, but it flips the words. The garment simile reappears, and in the words dismayed or failed, appears again like it did in verse 6. I think the theme of today's passage has been the development of similarities of the servant and the believing remnant. In 58, 50, Verse 8, we saw the servant faced with charges. And then in verse 7, the believing remnant will face reproach, much like we saw in 50, verse 9. But their enemies, the ones bringing those charges, will wear out like a garment. So we, like the servant, must be prepared for a life of perseverance, knowing that we are moving and working our way, not through this life for nothing, but for an eternity with God and the curse of sin removed forever. Verse 7 says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Know can also be said as pursue, and this matches verse 1 when it says, Be in the pursuit of righteousness. This contrasts 46.12 when Isaiah pointed to the people that are far from God. The people here have a deep, deep relationship with God and form a life that is a distinctive relationship 
in a distinctive relationship with him. Knowing righteousness goes far beyond just knowledge of what is right and wrong, but it is a, it is a righteousness that conforms to the will of God and is in union with him. Also in verse 7, God uses four verbs here that rise up in intensity. We see fear starting to escalate at the thought of reproach and dismayed going into a state of shock before their revilings or insults. Verse 8, the true people of God understand that everything seen is only temporary and the eternal things that we need to trust in are not seen. Eat them up like a garment, eat them like wool, are repetitive for emphasis here. And we look back, we see this in Isaiah 49:26. It says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. But God tells us that His righteousness will be forever and His salvation is for all generations. So the big takeaway is we need to pursue a righteousness in God, not giving into this world, but striving to follow follow a loving God who wants to have this deep relationship with us. And we need to move from having that faint knowledge of what we think God commands to a hard, fast, true knowledge of God, and we can only get that by spending time with him and his word. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you and I cannot do justice to what you have written here. We thank you so much for this word and what it means. And again, as I prayed before, how it was written so many years before it even took place. And it's still you talking to us today, commanding us to draw near to you, to trust you. You want us to respond to this major gift you've given us. So we thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you for your love. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to set that time in that meeting place where we gather with you and grow in our knowledge. We love you so much. Amen.